Welcome to the Live Big Podcast featuring Dr. Derek Greer, where we teach principles from God's Word that will empower you to live big. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com. Here's Dr. Greer. Father, open eyes tonight. I pray that your word breaks through our hearts and uh, we leave here with a strong understanding of who you are. And we give you glory in advance for all you do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We're going to begin in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10. And for many of us, it's a familiar portion of scripture. And the, the writer of Proverbs here says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. In order to understand this verse, we have to answer two questions. Well, what is a tower and what is the name of the Lord? So what we, what we need to do here is back up and find out, well, what did the name of the Lord mean to people in this age? Now, the writer of Proverbs had access only to the, uh, the five books of the Bible, and there were a few others that were available at the time, but uh, there, there really wasn't a whole lot of information about God that had been recorded. So let's take a look at what the writer of Proverbs was referring to. Exodus 34 and verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud. Now this was the glory cloud, uh, often referred to as the Shekinah glory cloud, of God. Now, in ministry, I have only seen this one time in my life, and I remember it. Uh, I remember it very clearly. We were in the auditorium in the high school, and uh, we maybe we were a hundred people that particular Sunday. And uh, I, w- I stood up to minister, and I saw literal clouds begin to roll in from the back of the sanctuary. And I didn't really know what to do about it, but I, I, I so I acknowledged it. I said, I, I see a cloud. And immediately, now listen, I'm the one standing to preach. Everyone's waiting to hear. We've already gone through worse for all the rest. Everyone's waiting to hear the message. And the preacher falls flat on the ground. So I, I was out, but what I, I didn't know was when, when I fell under the power of God, the power of God hit that whole room, and uh, we had some of our most critical, cynical, hardest members. Uh, they were either laughing uh, in, in the joy of the Lord, uh, they were either on their knees uh, worshiping God, or others fell down just like, like I did. But the power of God was in the room, and lives were changed forever. And this is the power of the presence of the all mighty God. So this same cloud was uh, in the uh, uh, tabernacle here. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there or the tent of witness and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now God manifested in the way that Moses could certainly experience, but also he used words, this is important, to memorialize it. Our supernatural experiences must always align with God's word. And the Lord passed before him. They could feel the literal manifest presence of the almighty God. And the Lord proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. So he repeated, it's actually Yahweh, Yahweh. He repeated the same name that God gave Moses or God uh, told Moses was his name at the burning bush. He was saying, I am, I am the self-existent one. And it's important here. Revelation is built upon revelation or illumination is built upon illumination. And there are no new revelations that are not built upon God's old. So when 
God begins to reveal himself and actually explain his name to Moses. He goes back to what he originally said to Moses because God doesn't change and his truth doesn't change. His truth remains the same. And he said, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. We say uh, in the English tongue, I am the, the uh, uh, self-existent one, the eternal one. And let, let's take a look at Hebrews 10 and 7 and, and listen to Jesus as he talks about the uh, the paralleling or the cooperation better between the Bible and uh, what God actually does or God's word and his uh, manifestation. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. So Jesus did not just come as some guy with something to say. He came as a fulfillment of all that was spoken before him. Likewise, when we have a genuine encounter with God, it will be consistent with all that the Bible says about the nature of God and the things that God does. It says, then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the, of the book. It is written of me to do your will. Oh, God. And this is why establishing a biblical foundation is so uber, uber important. Everything godly ahead of you is, is built on the truths that Jesus has already laid underneath you. And this is a vital, vital uh, thing we must understand. If we don't have a firm foundation, everything we build from that point uh, is sinking sand, as we talked about last week. Let's go back to Exodus 34. And the Lord passed before him and proclaim basically his name, the Lord, the Lord God. So Yahweh or Jehovah, I, I prefer Jehovah, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, God understands our accent and, and we may, you know, there's no J's by the way, in case you're a scholar out there, I recognize there's no J in the uh, Hebrew alphabet, uh, but we put a uh, English twang on it and we say Jehovah, but uh, he, Jehovah was not a spirit among spirits, if you will. He is the supreme God above everything that could ever be possibly worship. So he, he gives us this description. He gives Moses in particular this description, but it's also given to us because we read these verses. He, he explains who he is, is his essential nature. So we can never mix him up with another. So if anyone ever comes in the name of the Lord and is missing one of these attributes, it is not the Lord God because the Lord is always completely himself and he never changes. And the first thing on the list after he says, I'm Yahweh, I am Jehovah, I'm the one that spoke to you in the bush. First on the list is merciful. So he is merciful. God is absolute love. Any revelation that is not merciful is not from a merciful God. And then it goes on and gracious. So God is kind to the inferior. Uh, it's his nature to give strength to the weak. This is just, just the nature of God. It's what he does if we allow him to be God. Long-suffering. So God is not quick-tempered. You may be uh, your perspective of God. You may think he is, but let me tell you something. This world would have been wiped out a long time ago if he was uh, impatient uh, and quick-tempered. So he's long-suffering, and he puts up with a whole lot before he reacts uh, with strength and force uh, and perhaps uh, negatively. And abounding in goodness and truth. So we see here that God, by his, his nature, uh, essential to his character, is, is he is good. He has no faults. God has no dark side. He has no secret sins. He has no public face and private face. It also says God is 
truth, meaning he only operates consistent with his principles and he never falters in this. This is why when folks divert from scripture and they say it's God, I say, no, you got the devil because I know God. God does not divert from truth. He is the truth. He is always true to his principles. So if you could grab hold of the principles of God's word and God's word and, and, and him are one, uh, you can have a, a good understanding of who God is and you can stay safe uh, in your walk with God. He says, keeping mercies. This is the God that was revealing himself to Moses. And you would think that a lot of people say, well, there's a different God in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. That's a lie. It's the same God. And we see the same characteristics. It says he began with mercy. And that's, we, we see that in the New Testament. They just didn't understand it fully in the Old. Uh, the second was grace. Then he started talking about his patience, that he's not trying to kill people and destroy people. And then it went on to say that he is by nature good. And he is uh, the way, the truth and, and the life. He's truth. But verse seven, it says, keeping mercy for thousands. Now in the Hebrew language, 1000 was the highest numerical value that they had in the language. So if you wanted to get higher than um, a thousand, you'd have to multiply. So it might be uh, thousands times thousands, which is a thousand times a thousand, which is a million or 10,000 times 1000. That's how you would get to a million. But the whole point that's being made is that God is big enough. He He's keeping mercy for thousands. Our, our highest ability to count God can show mercy, meaning um, he's big enough to show mercy on anyone on the earth that's willing to come to him. He cannot be exhausted. Forgiving iniquity. This is the God of the Old Testament revealed in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So you see three different approaches to the evil that's inside man. And the Bible is telling us he forgives faults of every sort, whether it's a deed, whether it's an action, whether it's thought, whether it's even our very nature. He is the ultimate forgiving God by no means clearing the guilty. He forgive, he forgives all those who yield to his mercy. The only way you will not receive forgiveness is not accepting God's forgiveness. Um, you know, if his forgiveness is rejected, uh, he's just though. And there's no other name under heaven whereby uh, we must be saved. So he, he no means clears the guilty. So he forgives. But if you reject accepting that forgiveness, if you reject God's provision at the cross, God will not forget that. I mean, it's a big deal. Imagine if I gave my son um, or, or, you know, either of my sons. And I, I said, well, you know what? You, you, you sinned. And I am, let, let me tell you something. As a dad, I'd rather die than my child. It would be harder for me to give up my son to even give up myself. So for God to give up his son is the biggest gift he could give. And for us to stick our nose up at it and say, well, you know what? I want another way is absolutely obnoxious in the nostrils of God. So it says, and by no means clearing the guilty. So uh, again, this is the, the nature of God. God is just. God is fair. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when we do not accept the mercy of God, the grace of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God, and all the things that we have mentioned, it will impact 
our children. And this is why every week we go into the highways and the byways with this message. On every possible uh, media platform, we are communicating this gospel so that the whole world knows and has an opportunity to hear of the goodness of our God. Now, you may have thought that I lost track and I forgot what we were talking about, but we're going to go back to Proverbs right now. Proverbs 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is. Now, in the ancient world, a name was, you know, we pick a name because it has a ring or it sounds nice. But in the ancient world, a name typically represented something about the character of the one who bore that particular name. So if God by nature cannot lie, meaning he cannot represent himself in any way, if he has named himself something, he will always be true to that name. So please understand, in the Old Testament, all they knew that, you know, God, uh, you know, showed up with some plagues and he did some powerful things, but they didn't really know about his character yet. Now, we could look back on the scripture and see some things about his character, but God is basically introducing himself and he's saying, I am these things. And when you see these things, all of them together, not one missing, you can know that it is me. So if his name is, is mercy, grace, slow temper, goodness, and truth, if he's inexhaustive in, in his forgiveness and his grace, uh, the one who always forgives, this is always the one we should expect. He said the name or these characteristics, these attributes of God, these attributes are not just things. They are coming or they are uh, descriptive of a person. They are adjectives. They are important uh, ways for us to understand who it is we are relating to. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Now, a strong tower, now again, we have to understand two things to understand this proverb. So we, we looked at what the name of the Lord meant to them at the time of the writing of Proverbs 18, but what is a strong tower? Well, the strong tower was the part of the wall that protruded out just, uh, well, okay, cities were walled at this time. And it was the part of the city wall that protruded out just a little bit further than the other points. And the reason for this tower, if you will, was so that the soldiers could look and they could look back at the walls to make sure all the walls are safe. If all the walls were just flat, uh, you would not be able to clearly or as clearly see what was happening at the bottom uh, of the wall. So the, the point of these, these strong towers uh, was really security and safety. And if these strong towers were manned properly, it didn't matter how uh, strong the arrow was or how sharp the sword was. Uh, it could not reach a person behind these Walls. So uh, a strong tower was the ultimate place of protection in the ancient world. And he said the name of the Lord, when you get a revelation of who God is and, and his nature and character, stop calling him the devil and start, stop attributing to him things that only the devil does. When you get a revelation of who God is, you will step into ultimate protection. He says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are Safe. Now, if you're not certain about the character of God, you have nowhere to run. 
And the challenge is sometimes we get the devil mixed up with God. The devil does that. We say, well, God did. No, no, the devil did that. And we have to be clear that God is a good God. In God is no darkness at all, James said. No shadow of turning. God is not, you know, in a bad mood one day and in a good mood the next day. But now watch the contrast. He said, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, the righteous, as you and I, run in and we get revelation of this name and the character of our God and we find safety. But watch this, verse 11. The rich man's wealth, on the other hand, is his strong city. This is the person that trusts in their wealth. This is the person that sees everything only through a materialistic lens. Now, trusting in money is extremely short-sighted. I know, you know, in, in, uh, you know we, we think it's everything, and we, we think, you know, money can, can save us for, from everything. But, uh, you know... As much money as the United States of America has, we are one of the richest nations in the history of the planet, but COVID has completely shut us down. Part of that may be because there's a name of the Lord that we have not fully embraced. We've embraced the academics, we embrace the scientists, but there is a name above every name that can be named. And trusting in money um, is, like I said, very, very sure side because there are many ways for, for money even to lose its power. The government may print too much of it. Hello, a lot of that's happening. Um, thieves may steal it. Inflation may rob it of its value. Uh, sometimes even governments stop backing their money. But the name of the Lord will never, never lose its power. So these things on the planet that we use and, and touch, and, and we need to learn to use money and resource, etc. But they're just to be used, never to be trusted. Ultimately, it's only the name of the Lord. The character of the Lord will never lose its power power. It said, the rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall, watch this, in his own esteem. Meaning the rich person is often duped into thinking that his own resources are enough to protect him or her from anything that life may bring. So again, the richest nation on the planet, Corona, there are still things that can reach us. I mean, as wealthy as you are, uh, but the wealthy are getting divorces. I, I haven't studied this so late, but uh, much at the rate of, of the poor. You know, wealth can't protect you from a divorce. It can't replace your time. It cannot rightly raise your children. It cannot teach your children values. It cannot fix a crazy mind. I know a lot of crazy rich people. You know, this, this may surprise you. But the greatest competition God has is not Buddha or Allah, it's actually money. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, and let's listen to Jesus. He said, no one, not, not a person, there's no exception. This is a, 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 a truth that no matter what part of the world you're in, it's true. No one, nobody can serve two masters. Now, this is not talking about having two jobs. Um, though that there is some similarity in having two jobs, you, you know, you, though, though I could, you know, a second job will impact the first job, but he's not just talking about having two jobs. He's talking about ancient slavery and, and an ancient slave was to be at the beck and call of, or, uh, or indentured servant was to be at the beck and call of their master. And, and if, here's the deal. If one master called, you would not necessarily be there for the other master. And that would undermine the whole idea of what a slave was all about. So 
this again, indentured servitude and, and, and slavery was very, very common at this point in history. And he said, listen, y'all have seen this. You have watched this. And some of you are slaves yourselves. And you know, you cannot serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other, or you, you'll have some preferences, or else he would be loyal to the one and, and despise the other. In other words, something will eventually have to give. And the slave or the servant would have to decide which of the masters he prefers, and he'd probably have to rebel against the one to please the other. And then he goes on to say, watch this. You cannot, so he's talking about two masters, and he's talking about uh, basically the competition in men's heart, uh, or, or, the, or the competition that weighs in men's heart against God. You cannot serve God and the devil. That's not what he says. You would think that. But he doesn't say the devil. He didn't say Allah or Buddha. You cannot serve God and mammon. Again, you would think that the real conflict was between Christianity and Satanism. Christianity and idolatry in its various forms. But actually money is a type of idolatry, but, but stay with me. Instead of talking about Satan, he used the word mammon, which represented Money, money making a living, our natural means on the earth is the greatest competitor against our supernatural God. You see, everyone says they love God until God asks them for some money. You'll find that even in the church world. Every Sunday is good until there's that message on finance. Why? Because the pastor just poked your God. And you had a moment where you had to choose between what was really your God and the one you said was your God. The, the only way we can learn, and God knows this, and this is why he set it up this way in the Bible. The only way we cannot worship money or we, we will learn not to worship money is to worship God with our money. So when I worship God with my resources and I love people, I expand the kingdom and I, I help do his work with my resources, I am worshiping God through my means. And that is the chief way that I make sure I have money and money doesn't have me. It's the chief way that I make sure that my ultimate God is not my resources, but the God whom I say I, I love and serve that died on the cross for me, et cetera. If he would do all that on the cross, the least I could do is a little bit he has me to do uh, on the planet. You have been listening to the Live Big Podcast with Dr. Derek Greer. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com or follow Dr. Greer on social media.